Welcome to Scholars and Sense. It's the podcast that takes a deep dive into the issues of the day. We do so with thoughtful conversation, and we rise above the noise and talking points. With the help of my colleagues, we get to the heart of the matter. I'm Bill Bennett, alongside my co-hosts, Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson. Conrad, Victor, let's jump in. Fourth of July in America, it uh, means a lot to Americans. I was just talking to a young guy, a trainer, uh, and he uh, he's all excited. They're in North Carolina, he's going to take his children and go to the parade in town, and they have flags, and they, uh, they'll they watch the parade. Uh, is that is that on its way out in America? Is that a declining uh, factor in America? We'll get to that, but I, I, I really want to start this show, this podcast, by asking the three of us to say something about America and we talk about it all the time. We talk about its critics. We talk about threats to it. But what it means uh, to each of us by way of a story or a memory or a couple of stories. And I thought we'd start with our, our Tocqueville here, uh, Lord Black, Conrad Black. Uh, Conrad, go go ahead. You uh, observe us from a little distance. Yeah, well, being a, a member of the British Parliament and a resident of Canada, uh, I, I do. I, I, I see the United States. I've been a I was a homeowner in the United States for 40 years in both um, Palm Beach, Florida, and New York City, but I've never been a citizen or a resident of the United States. But um, I would say this, as just in passing, I had uh, an appalling legal episode there where I was, if I may say so, oppressed. Uh, but it was, it must be said, ultimately concluded that uh, after I'd spent three years guest of the American people, I may say, that uh, no one should have been charged in the case. So I won the legal battle, but it was a most searing experience. And I am, in fact, extremely critical of the way they U.S. justice system operates. It has a conviction rate of 99%, 97% without a trial. And that, that is not a justice system. It's just a conveyor belt to the prison system. But with that said, it is unquestionably the greatest country in the history of the world. And there's nothing in the history of the world remotely like the rise of the United States in two long lifetimes from Yorktown to 1945, 162 years, uh, nothing like the rise of the United States from a few million colonists to, to a half of the entire economic product of the world at the end of World War II, uh, and the nuclear monopoly and the founder and host of an organization for which the world at the time held great hope, the United Nations. And at that time, in that year of 1945, uh, the leadership of the United States, civilian and military, Roosevelt and Truman, Marshall, MacArthur, Eisenhower, Nimitz, no country could possibly imagine or, or put up a higher quality of leadership than that. It's a remarkable story, and there's not another story like it. Now, in terms of a, an episode to illustrate this, if I may, I'll just say that as a, as a member of the British House of Lords, I was present and voted, along with everyone else, to make the final payment, repayment, on the Lend-Lease arrangements. Uh, and as you'll recall, um, at, uh, in the darkest moments of World War II, uh, President Roosevelt um, imposed peacetime, peacetime conscription for the first time in American history in the middle of seeking a third term, which no one had done before, uh, and, and gave the British 50 destroyers. Then he extended coastal waters, as he defined them, from three miles to 1,800 miles. 
and ordered the U.S. Navy to attack on detection any German ship. And then he passed the Lend-Lease Act, which gave the British and Canadians anything they wanted and they could pay for it essentially when they could. Now, that's an idiosyncratic definition of neutrality. But without it, Britain and Canada could not have continued in the war. And the Nazis would have been in indefinite control of Western Europe. And, uh, and it was my privilege to, to cast the ceremonies, along with all the other peers and members of the House of Commons, to finish off the repayments of the Lend-Lease Act. And I'll conclude, if I may, uh, with just a, the re- extract and the resolution Mr. Churchill presented to the House of Commons right after that act was passed in 1941 which was unanimously approved. It was there that he referred to it famously as the most unsorted act in the history of any nation, and then uh, sent a a message to the United States expressing our deep and respectful appreciation of this monument of generous and far-seeing statesmanship. The most powerful democracy has declared that they will devote their overwhelming industrial and financial strength to ensuring the defeat of Nazism. The government and people of the United States have, in fact, written a new Magna Carta that not only proclaims the rights and laws of a healthy and advancing civilization, but also proclaims by precept and example the duty of free men and free nations to share the responsibility and burden of enforcing them. In the name of all freedom-loving peoples, we offer to the United States, the President, the Congress, and the people our gratitude for their inspiring act of faith. It was well, unanimously passed in 1941 and unanimously reapproved in 2001. And, and, well, and uh, may, may I just add one final, I'm sorry to be such a, uh, no, so no, 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 no. a good friend of mine, probably known to both of you, Frank Buckley, a public intellectual who was uh, attached to, he's a professor at um, George Mason University near, near Washington. Um, he changed from being a Canadian citizen to an American, and his statement was, and this is today is our national day here in Canada, uh, July 1. He, he said, uh, I am leaving the best country in the world to go to the greatest country in the world, but they are both good countries and they are both great countries. And that is my, that I, I would echo that very modestly. There a um, maybe a, a commonplace, a, an incident, a, a, a comment, a uh, something when you went into a restaurant or went up to the bar or went to a ball game or something, and you said, "I'm not in Canada anymore. I'm not in England anymore. I know, I know, I'm in America." It was a few years after the Berlin Wall came down. Um, it was, in fact, it was about ten years after. I, George Will invited me to dinner, and the the other there were there were couples, but the other couple was the then vice president dick cheney and and his wife we were sort of giving different perspectives and i said look i have to say the thing that has most impressed me since the end of the cold war is it was the greatest and most bloodless strategic victory in the history of the world ultimately your opponents simply disintegrated fell like a souffle but what has impressed me most was not just the overwhelming success of your policy pursued i think by 10 straight administrations uh, but the fact that I have not heard one American utter a boastful word about it, and it is not exactly, if you mind, yeah. you don't mind my saying so, it, you're not a people that are most renowned for being reluctant to indulge the uh, craze of your own country, and nor should you be. But I have never heard one single American say, well, we certainly saw those Russian commies off, didn't we? No one said anything like that. They said, well, it's a nice thing. The world's a less dense place. You know, let's let's all be happy for that. And it's a profoundly positively oriented country. 
And it, it is painful to me as a, if I may be pro, so presumptuous as to say this, a friend of America, an admirer of America, to see the country uh, tormenting itself the way it often does nowadays. I think it's aberrant. I think it will pass. But it's painful to say and undeserved. Hope we self-correct. Victor, please. Yeah, I think the two things that I take away from in America in particular is that uh, America's even Joe Biden admitted, is an idea in the sense it's not a blood and soil country. And that was innate at the founding. I know it was founded by so-called white men from the British Isles, but in the Declaration of the Constitution was this idea that race or national origin would be incidental, not essential to who we are. And that's, I can't think of any other place in the world where that's true. And that was so true. Remember Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the new Confederacy, damned the Constitution in a letter and said that the problem with the Constitution, the reason that we are leaving the United States is that it had nothing to do with white supremacy and white supremacy was never mentioned in the Constitution. But the point that I'm making is that's very rare in history to have a multiracial society united by the idea of of a common citizenship. Brazil tries it, maybe India less effectively, but throughout history, the people who had these multiracial, multicultural empires or nations, the Soviets or the Ottomans or Yugoslavia, they always required a degree of coercion to make people not act innately tribal, which is our first propensities anyway. But here in the United States, we did not use it. The second thing, and then very quickly, is that And it can be both good and bad. I think it comes from our Puritan origins. But we have this exalted idea that we're all we're in a city on the hill and we're going to reach perfection and we're on our way. I think Obama called, you know, the arc of history or the better. That's not who we are. All of that rhetoric that we define goodness as perfection. If we're not perfect, then we're not good. And we never say take a deep breath and say, could any of us right now, could Claude or me or Conrad or Bill, could we be fully accepted as citizens of Mexico or China or Japan? Mm-hmm. Would there ever be Kamala Harris and Barack Obama as a chancellor and vice chancellor of Germany? I don't think so. Yeah. So what I'm getting is compared to the alternative, the country is so singular and you can really see it in immigration. Two million people are scheduled over a 12 month period uh, this year into next to cross the border illegally into the United States at a time when their sponsors or their advocates are saying that this is a racist, unfair, terrible country. And yet people who are not white are are coming into the country anyway. They they know something that their advocates don't. So compared to the alternative, I think that's what Americans really need to to remember. The other night on TV, I don't know what show, but I think I heard you correctly. You said this tribalism, uh, you know, only being with people who look like you was the, was the rule, the uh, the order of the day up till I did, did I hear you correct up till about twenty five hundred years ago we had this opportunity. I don't want to get off the celebration of America, but is this what we're being invited to return to? Atavism here to return to tribalism to identification by what you look like. I mean. That, it is really pretty primitive stuff, yeah, and yeah. it kind of defies everything America is. By which I you once just talked said. to a, I once, you know, I was a colleague of Fuad Jami, and when I I was in, oh yeah, 
I think yeah. I've been to almost all of the Arab countries, and I asked him once, why doesn't this work? And he just looked at me and smiled and said, because people will hire their first cousin every time over the yeah. person who's better qualified. Yeah. And it's a tri- tribalism is the enemy of uh, civilization. And if we go back to that where it, it won't work because we're going to have to have DNA badges because we're all mixed up anyway. And then we're going to have all these intersectional wars about this group says that they were more aggrieved or victimized or oppressed than that group. And you can already see the feminist movement doesn't know what to do with the transgendered movement, especially as it pertains to women's sports and the Latinos and the Asians. And then we have a lot of black on Asian crime and then they don't know what to do with this. So they blame it on white supremacy or we have Middle Eastern attacks on Jewish Americans. So they say, well, that doesn't fit the narrative, the intersectional. Right. Once you start to go down that tribal road, you get into thicket pretty quickly. Can I offer one historic view from a non-American standpoint? I think I agree with everything you both have said, but I think the main reason for it was that the United States was the first substantial country in the world not to have a language of its own. I mean, at the time of the founding of the United States, you know, the English spoke English and the French spoke French and, and the Spanish spoke Spanish and so forth. And, and since you, you, know, you didn't have the English language to yourselves, uh, the substitute was to say, but we are the free country. Now, in fact, as you men know, there was not really a greater degree of freedom in America than there was in Switzerland or the Netherlands or Sweden or a few other places, but, or even really Britain. But, but that wasn't the point. It, it was the concept and the world has followed the concept. And, and, uh, and in 19, you know, at the, towards the end of the 20th century, and the communist world was breaking up. These rebelling students in Prague and so on read the works of Jefferson and Lincoln. They didn't say, oh, well, Jefferson was a slaveholder and, you know, Lincoln presided over this terrible war and so on. It was the abstract idea of liberty. And that became America's brand from the beginning. Now, it wasn't an exclusive brand, but they were the brand leader. And they kept it. You have kept it. And despite the antics of these uh, uh, dissident elements at the moment, uh, that's a sideshow. Okay. You, you still possess it and you'll keep it and you deserve it. Let me talk a little bit out of my, my own experience, if I can. Um, and some of this, I don't want to be braggy, uh, given particularly what you said, Conrad. But when I was standing there in the cabinet meeting, it just sort of all overcame me. I Not a sad story. I grew up lower middle class in New York, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, but my mother, uh, my mother was divorced four times. Uh, she had two jobs, uh, told my brother and me uh, we had to work hard, play sports, do excel in everything we could to go to good schools, get a good education. Um, growing up as an Irish Catholic in Brooklyn, all we knew were Democrats. When I joined the Reagan cabinet, I was a Democrat. Reagan said, that's okay. I was too. He patted me on the shoulder. But I remember being at that first cabinet meeting. And the thing that overwhelmed me was how rich all those guys were, uh, all the <laughs> Reagan's friends, you know. And they were all complaining about trust funds and all this stuff. They looked at me and they said, what about you? George Schultz looked at me and said, what about you? I said, well, I got a raise. This is a raise for me. This is a big, big, big raise. I was teaching philosophy before. And I thought, you know, how the heck did I get here? And, you know, um, it's not that the odds were stacked against me like some, you know, really poor inner city kid or something. But, you know, the work at it, and son of a gun, you know, I got recommended and then I got interviewed and, you know, Jesse Helms and John East, you know, these twin firebrands of conservatism said, uh, when you run the National Endowment for the Humanities, can you at least run it fair? And I said, yeah, that was that. Well, those were their incendiary demands. 
And I thought, man, what a country. Uh, and I'm sitting here in the cabinet of the United States, you know, Ronald Reagan over there and George Shultz and these other people next to me. The other thing was when I went abroad, and I had not been abroad at all, I went with my boss, Charles Frankel. You, may, you guys may remember Charles, uh, philosophy professor at Columbia, cosmopolitan man of parts, man of the world. And we went over, and that was my first trip. My second trip was as secretary. And when I went to Paris, I met uh, Mr. Chevamont. And uh, he, I came in and I said, how are you? He said, I said fine. He, said, he looked at his watch. He said, oh, it's 10 o'clock. They are all reading their Racine. And then he looked at me and said, what are they doing in America? And I said, God knows. No, I hope they're in school, probably in recess. Anyway, that, that little difference there. But the real one was when I visited Ken Baker. I don't know if you ever knew Ken Baker. Knew him well. Secretary of State for Education. And, then and then we, got to, we got to be yeah, pretty good friends. And he wanted to visit America, so he came. I'll make a long story short. And we went to an inner city classroom in Washington, about four blocks from the education department. And he talked to the kids, all the black kids, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And when we walked out, and I got in the car, and he said, amazing. I said, I, said, I said, what? He said, well, you know, if we had kids with the same faces in England, they'd say the same things. He said, but these kids actually believe it. They actually believe it. They're going to be an astronaut. They're going to be a doctor. You know, they're going to be president of the United States. I said, yeah, there's a problem about getting them to take the right courses to do all that. But he said, but they believe it. That's, he said, that's the difference. You guys really believe it. You're so positive and you get that through somehow. He said, I wish we had, uh, I wish we had more of that here. One of my favorite, there are a million things you have them in your head. You guys say these things that inspire people. One, I can't remember who said it, but it was someone. And he said that, he said, if you, you know, if you're in some godforsaken, immiserated country with some dictator with this boot on your neck and you're suffering and, uh, you know, the, they've taken over power and you hear an army coming and I'm coming over the hill and they got a flag. The last thing you say, pray, is that it's the American flag. Because that's the only one you can be sure is there to help you, not to pillage you, not to plunder to help you um I'll never, I'll never forget that would that would that be true all the time and remain so um extraordinary place i try to I try to talk, teach my boys and they've turned out to be good conservative warriors they both went to princeton where they took a lot of heat they'd call me up and say dad you were boy they hit you again in class these people really hate you up here dad i'm thinking of changing my name but they've they've persevered um i, I could go on bernard devoto came to mind when we were talking, uh, Victor, uh, 1846 year of decision, you know, the book. Yeah. yeah, I do. And the Donner party features in that book, but his introduction to, uh, Catherine Drinker Bowen's miracle at Philadelphia. And he said, you know, the amazing thing about America is that, uh, people have dreams, but people have dreams elsewhere. He said, the thing about America is those dreams come true. They actually do come true. I think one of our great strengths, it's also can be a weakness, but it's usually a strength is that we don't have this hierarchy of birth or we're a plutocracy in the sense that if I can tell you that out here where I am, I know a person who came from Mexico and he started in the garbage business and he went into a number of other businesses. And when he made a lot of money, guess what? They invited him to be a board of trustee member and he got instant social acceptance. Whereas in a lot of countries, it was either by birth or by uh, hereditary uh, requisite 
And here in America, if, that's why we have so people of dubious backgrounds, maybe, but it's a, it's a very strange thing where anybody who gains enough money can uh, acquire class and status in a way in most places in the world it's not possible. And that can be very, and the same thing is true about our culture. Everybody asks, you know, when you go overseas, they say, why do we have to listen to rap music? Why did we have to listen to jazz? Why has everybody got Levi's on? Why does everybody uh, watch American movies or used to watch them or American television? You always say to them, because it's accessible. It's not like Italian or German opera. You have to know a particular vocabulary or music. It, it's just, it's, and that's why, you know, they, they, we dumb down everything to the lowest common denominator. But there's, it's accessible and it's wide reaching and it's, there's this huge middle class, or at least it's been, you know, I have a book coming out, The Dying Citizen, how it's shrunk. But um, it, Brilliant it's book. No, no, nowhere else do you see this. And a lot of, I think, people are very envious. They look around and they say, you know, I have, I have talent. I'm an Italian and I have talent. Or I'm a Nigerian and I have talent, but I can't fully express it. I have to work for the government or I'm a surgeon, uh, you know, in Serbia. Or and if I can get to America, they'll recognize that talent and then I'll be successful. And I think until recently, and that's what's so scary about what we're going through with this woke movement. It's a war on meritocracy yeah. and equality of opportunity, and it's substituting this new recalibrated word equity, which is really a quality of result as mandated and overseen by the government. Uh, can I just advise you guys as an outsider not to underestimate the success of your country uh, in, in proselytizing the American system? I mean, when the Cold War began and the Policymakers in Washington determined that they, they the, on the containment strategy, and they coined the phrase "the free world." A lot of the free world wasn't free, as we know. It was all these juntas in South America, and it was uh, Singh, Marie, and Franco, and the, the, the Salazar, and so on. But uh, uh, eventually, almost all of these countries became free. And the fact is, uh, the world owes to the United States the comparative success of democracy and the free market. And many of these democracies, new democracies, are very virile, active democracies that are reenacting the model that you two have just described. So, uh, they're, they're, look, all of us, every country has concerns about what's happening within its own borders. In the case of Canada, we had to produce even more of our population from immigration than you did in order to maintain our status comparative size to you so that Canada wasn't simply absorbed, assimilated into the U.S. And, and uh, not that that was done out of anti-Americanism, but everyone wants to hang on to what they have. And, and um, so as you celebrate, you yeah. they do remember that much of the world has emulated you and some of it very, very successfully. I believe it is a fact that the Constitution is the most imitated political document in the world. And even though a young country, we have lived longer continuously under a single document than anyone else in the world. I think I think both of those are true. Do you know the joke? I may mangle this. You'll have to help me. The guy goes into the British Museum and asks for a copy of the French Constitution. And the clerk says, I'm sorry, sir, we don't keep periodicals. <laughs> the present yeah. French Constitution is a brilliant document. It's only okay. three pages long, and De Gaulle and Michel Debray wrote it in one weekend. It's a brilliant document. Okay, I got to ask Conrad first: Have you ever been introduced in America at an informal setting as Lord Black? 
Uh, yes, I have occasionally. And do people, I, does anybody come up to you and say, I got to know if somebody has come up to you and said, Lord, what kind of Lord are you? Come on. That's yeah. very American. Come on. Somebody <laughs> no, I have. Yes, I have. And what do you and say? I, what do you say? Oh, and I get things like, what's the difference between a Lord and a sir? And then another person will say, there is no difference. You know, I, no, well, I always, I, I, I have this little, uh, you know, until, uh, until I wore it a bit thin, I would say, look, I, I don't use my title outside Britain and inside Britain or out. My title and the correct fare get me on the public transit system. I mean, I, I don't want people to think I'm claiming any grandeur for myself because of it. People yes, love it. They love it. Americans love it. You know, they don't want to be it, but they love it. Come on, no. You're the most, people ask more about you than anybody else. So on our podcast so. yeah. and on, and on my, my podcast. Well, that's because I'm not as well known as you two. No, they want to know what kind of Lord you are. I, don't, I said, I think he's a pretty good Lord. Well, you know, there are degrees of the peerage and I'm the lowest degree. I'm a baron. I'm Above not- me, you get a Viscount, an Earl, a Marquis, and a Duke. And the only person in British history who had his patents read as all five at the same time was the, the Duke of Wellington. When he left England for Spain, he was Sir Arthur Wellesley. And when he returned, he was the Duke of Wellington. All right. Now you're getting my Irish up. Now you're getting my Irish up. <laughs> he was Victor. an Irishman. The Duke <laughs> okay. was an Irishman. You're right. You're right. You're right. Victor, please. Yeah. No, just, 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 just any other thoughts here? We're going to, you know. Well, what I'm just, worried about is that all of what we're talking about is really fine, but it has to be renewed every generation yeah. through some kind of civic education. And yeah. somebody who's taught since I was 29 and in graduate school, I taught um, the level of comprehension of America's past or even acquaintance. So when you see people today, uh, they do two things. Students, if you say Iwo Jima or Antietam or Gettysburg, they have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. If you right. say William Tecumseh Sherman or you say Pericles, you might as well just talk about Lindsay Lohan or uh, Brad Pitt. And then the second thing is they look at everything they've been taught to look at collectivization. Everybody's uh, a cardboard cutout. He's not an individual. When you think of the all the millions of people who fought on the frontier on both sides, then we become white oppressors and Native American victims. It's never, uh, it's always melodrama. It's never tragedy. There's not good pioneers and bad pioneers and evil Indians and good Indians. The Sioux wiping out their uh, rival Native Americans or sending buffalo in mass over the cliff and not using all of the the meat in a very, so we just get this idea that, because of your race or your tribe, then you become an invisible person. And all of American history is about this story of the oppressed, the person with the oppressed we have all. And what gets me about it, I, I think, was that what all those people were flying in 1942 on B-17s were on the mission casualty or loss rate was about 4%. And after about 25 missions, they were wiped out. 40,000 got killed. And is that what, D-Day was about? Was that what Okinawa was about? Was that what Bella Wood was about? Nobody here knows has any idea who those people were other than they represented a particular gender or a particular race. Or so. And the same goes true with the civil rights movement. If you were a black activist, there's a big difference between Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King and Al yeah. Sharpton and yeah. Jesse Jackson and yeah. Kendi. Yeah. Mr. Rustin was a brilliant guy. I mean, he was way ahead of his time. Uh, and yet, 
we just we look at people by their skin color or we look without individuality and then all of these people who made us what we are we have no gratitude for anymore we have no knowledge of them we're completely ignorant of the past that's kind of what the left wants to do when they want to change the name like the jacobins did of everything and they want to change the name of our founding to 1619 i came in one day to my office during the uh, lockdown and i looked out the window and i thought wow i'm not i'm getting old but i'm not in the right place there's no there's no father hunipio sarah plaza anymore oh yeah below the window and they changed it they changed the name because purportedly this 18th century wonderful brave guy who created the california mission system and introduced agriculture to california under great physical duress and pain was considered canceled out and so you have to ask yourself well who are replacing them who are the the moral superiors to these people that transcend their time and place who are they when we are iconoclasts we topple statues we name i'm waiting to see the next cast of characters that the woke movement gives us that are without uh, who's going to cast the first yeah. stone is what I'm saying. Ronald, he started Ronald Reagan's uh, last, my boss last uh, uh, speech was about teaching of the country and the history. And he says that, you know, if you're around the kitchen table and you're not getting this stuff at school or at home, you know, bang the table and tell your parents, I want, I want to know what happened. I want to know who Jimmy Doolittle was. I want to know what happened at Valley Forge. I want to know what the shot fired around the world means. Uh, there's a poll out today or yesterday. This is America, the greatest country in the world. And um, numbers are going down. More frightening is uh, as you go down in age, the numbers go further down. So um, it goes to the schools. Um, thus, I think the real importance of these battles that uh, this populist uprising, this School board uprising that's going on, um, and, it, and it's going on in lots of places. Uh, maybe one good thing out of COVID was that parents looked over their kids' shoulders and said, "What, what is what is that? Why, why are you studying that? What kind of thing is that?" You, as secretary, had to deal with the corruption of the teachers' unions, but they're much worse now than they were then. They are, they are, they are, and were. And um, no, I, I mean, I, I remember my my fights with them. I, I, you know, I said, "Look, you know." The drug, the drug problem. I said any any teacher, you know, convicted of a drug use. I, I was going to say any, any teacher who uses drugs, you know, uh, should, shouldn't be on the payroll. But I said anybody convicted of you know drug use should be out of the classroom. Yeah, teachers teachers went nuts. The only thing they objected to more that I said early on was that I I talked about memorization and I said I, I think it, it's very useful and the teachers unions just hated that idea. I did an event with Ronald Reagan, and we did back and forth the uh, cremation of Sam McGee. You, you know you know the poem, and uh, I know Victor does, right? There are strange yeah. things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. And then the president said, the Arctic trails have their secret tales to make their blood run cold. And, and this was uh, the staff. This was not approved by staff. And they wagged their finger at me, but I said to the president, you believe in memorization? He said, well, how the heck do you think I said those lines? You know? <laughs> We had to do Dan. Didn't he author Dan McGrew too? Yeah, Dan, yeah, right. Yes, yeah, Dan yeah. McGrew. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, remember, yeah. I remember that. Memorization, is, Plato said, is very important to be able to to memorize and to have reference in your head all the time that can make sense. Common reference that can make sense of things. We, yeah. We've thrown that. We've thrown that out as well. It develops and, mental muscle too. Not only it's it's comforting. And remember, I said at the time, but really the things I remember are the things I was made to remember from those nuns. 
who made me remember them, but I'm, I'm glad I remember them. My parents took my brother and me, just the two of us in our family, uh, uh, on the Easter holiday in 1955 on the train out to Seattle and then back in, on the Canadian side. And on the way out, my father offered us $5 each to memorize Mr. Lincoln's address at Gettysburg. And ah. we did, and we both have remembered it ever since. I had a professor, you may have remembered him, Bill, Norman O'Brown. He was kind of a guru in the 60s. Yeah, he was yeah. a kook, wasn't he, he? Yeah, he was at UC Santa Cruz. And he was yeah. finished, and he lived to be 95, but he was a good friend of Marcusa. And Herbert Herb, Marcusa yeah, came. Yeah. Well, suddenly he had a change. of. He wrote Love's Body and Life Against yeah, Death. Yeah. But he had been a classicist, so... In his late sixties, he decided that he was going to back be go back to his basics, and he offered the advanced classes in um, Greek lyric poetry, Lucretius. So everybody thought this was going to be an easy class to take. He'll just come in and talk about free love and and all this. But he was an, a very traditional Englishman, dressed that way, accent, and we got in there, and it was all grammar, 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 syntax, classical Greek. But I remember the final, everybody thought, well, it's going to be a psychoanalysis of the Bacchae or Freudian takes on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't. He, we went to his house and he said, memorize some poetry. And so we didn't know what that meant. So we went in there and he, had a, he actually had a, a chalk, uh, a little clipboard. This is this great supposedly left wing. And, sure. and we had to memorize Sappho, Minermus, uh, Alcaeus. Archilochus, and then he had a stopwatch, and he counted how many lines you got, <laughs> and then he gave you a grade, and then when it was all done in good revolutionary fervor, he took the paper, wadded it up, threw it away, and said, of course, there are no grades at CUC Santa Cruz, nor should there ever be grades. Um, but uh, he had it, even he couldn't quite get away from the idea that memorization is very important. So there's life after woke. I didn't know Norman O'Brown had a third life. That's great. Yeah, he did. That's he great. was he, he was very traditional. He at his house he he went around and made sure that all these guys with long hair that haven't bathed in a year used coasters on his uh, his mahogany <laughs> furniture. He had a beautiful home above uh, Pasa Temple Golf Course, and he'd look down and he'd say, "That's where the Hoy Palai lived down here. I'm Hoy Beltistoy up here." And then he would say, you know, any revolutionary that has three Volvos, all the same color, same model as I do. So he was very proud of his material success. He was from a very wealthy family from Mexico, mining family. Last thought to Americans on the 4th of July, sentence or two. Tell them to do something or remember something or not to forget something. Conrad? Keep in mind that without the presence of the United States, we couldn't have defeated the Nazis. We couldn't have defeated the Soviet Union. And uh, as as they contemplate the shortcomings as well as the greatness of American history and society, even though they don't know any history, just if they remember what I just said and look at America about them, uh, remember they are indispensable to the world. And and uh, there would not be the luxury of peaceful protests or any kind of protests if it wasn't for precisely the effort deployed by the United States in support of the kindred spirits upholding, as in Mr. Roosevelt's phrase, the lovers of freedom in every land. And, uh, and for you. much of that time, uh, America was the, the hope in the night, even, even uh, by listening to clandestine broadcasts and that sort of thing. Thank you. Victor? I think we have to realize that it's not set in stone that we have a birthright to exist. So right. uh, if you come to a point in your 
third year of your history where you believe America's not better than the alternative, uh, and there's no reason history says, well, you're Americans, you get exemption. Right. The majority of the population right. don't feel you're unique. You won't be unique. And so I think to finish, each person according to their station should you know, go to bed every night and say, did I contribute or did I detract from the American project? Did I pick up a piece of trash? Did I throw it down? Did I say something that was untrue? Did I attack my country past or did I support it? And it has to be on the plus side of the ledger, each of us. And so I think that's what we have to be is self, uh, self-critical of ourselves rather than self-critical of the country. That's what's, what I don't like about it. We're all attacking a country as if we're their moral superiors because of our yeah. supposed criticism. We have to say, don't attack the country, attack your own shortcomings that you, maybe you didn't live up to what the country was supposed to be about. Maybe the greatest nation, but not inevitable. You, I was going to say the same thing. Adams writes, John Adams writes somewhere, uh, his hope for this experiment is that we'll last 150 years. 233 now, right? 233. Yeah. Look, even Franklin was was not altogether optimistic. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay. Happy Take care. July. Thank and, you both. And happy Canada Day, too. Yeah. I, I salute both countries. That does it for today's show. Want to join the discussion? Email this show at scholarsandsensepodcast at gmail.com. Share the show with your family and friends. Subscribe, rate, review. Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hansen, I am Bill Bennett, and we'll talk again soon.